I want to thank uh, Brian for ministering to us today in music, and not only in the prelude and the offertory, but also for playing along with the hymns that uh, add a great deal to our worship. Thank you, and I appreciate the ministry of our praise band as well. So thank you for each and every one who participated in our service this day. This morning we are continuing in our study in the book of Matthew, centering on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew has been stressing the authority of Jesus' word. It is the concluding thought of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That was a key factor in the teaching of Jesus, that they were to recognize his authority and take his word to be authoritative. The people were told to center and to build their lives upon the teaching of Jesus' word. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. So Christ's words are authoritative and are to be the rock upon which we build our metaphorical homes. Our lives, our families, are to be grounded upon the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have a series of miracles that are given to us to teach us concerning Christ's authority. We are first introduced to his authority to heal by his word. Matthew 8 and 9. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man of authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. So the centurion says, I'm a man of authority. I only have to speak, and it is done. All you have to do is speak, and it will be done. We learn that by his word, Jesus is even able to steal, uh, still the winds and calm the seas. Matthew eight twenty six, And he said to them, that is to the winds and to the sea, uh, excuse me, to the uh, disciples, why are you timid? You men of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked, rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Last week, we saw that Jesus has authority over the demonic world, and by his word is able to cast out demons. Matthew eight thirty two. And he said to them, be gone. And they, that is the demons, came out and went into the swine. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the deep, steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. 
So all of this teaching us about the authority of Jesus, the authority to heal, authority over the elements of nature, over the demonic world and forces of evil. Today, we see that he has authority to forgive sins. Authority to forgive sins. As the narrative opens, Jesus returns to Capernaum. Notice verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now his own city at this time is Capernaum, Matthew 4.13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So it's back to Capernaum he goes. If you remember, the reason that he leaves the region that he's in is because the people had asked him to depart, Matthew 8.34. And behold, they were bringing, uh, and uh, behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they entreated him to depart from their region. They were afraid of Jesus and asked him to leave, and so leave he did. Now he goes back to Capernaum, and when he returns there, they bring to him a man who was paralyzed, verse 2. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed. In bringing the paralyzed man to Jesus, their faith was quite evident. It was obvious to all. Notice verse 2. And behold, they are bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, now these words, seeing their faith. Seeing their faith. This account is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each one of them, though they vary in their accounts in small ways, each one speaks of Jesus seeing their faith. Their faith. That being the faith of the paralytic and the faith of the men that brought the paralytic to Jesus. So the question is, how can one see faith? How is faith made observable? What does faith look like? In a parallel account, it is quite obvious that their faith could be seen in their actions. Their faith could be seen in their actions. According to Mark's account, in Mark chapter 2, verse 4, we read this. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. So, envision this. Jesus is in a crowded home. People have thronged Jesus in order to be next to him, and they're bringing people to be healed. Not only 
is the house filled, but there is a crowd gathered outside as well. How was this paralytic ever going to get to Jesus? And you can picture the situation. They are carrying him on a pallet, a bed, if you will, over their heads and trying to negotiate their way through this crowd and get him into a doorway and in the presence of Jesus. It seems like an insurmountable task, but they weren't going to be easily thwarted. They wanted to see their friend healed, and they were convinced of Jesus' ability and power to do so. So in their perseverance, they make their way to the house. They climb up to the roof of that house, lifting this man as they go. They get to the roof, and they start to dismantle the roof in order to expose the floor below. They dig through what would have been a a thatched roof, probably, and uh, finally see an opening. They, They make an opening, one big enough for this bed to be lowered down in front of Jesus. Can, can you imagine that setting? What in the world's going on up there as they hear noises on the rooftop and as it's being worked at and all of a sudden now a, an opening is appearing and it's getting bigger and it's getting bigger and it's getting bigger. It gets big enough that a bed is able to be lowered down and this bed is lowered right in front of Jesus. I'll tell you, there's not a soul in that house that doesn't see this man. And the crowd outside would have stood in amazement watching the people on the roof dig into this house, wondering what in the world are they going to do. And the people outside see them pick up this bed and lower it into the house. Their faith was observable. It could be seen. Their perseverance, their diligence, their expectation, their trust that if only they could get him into the presence of Jesus, he's going to be healed. He's going to be better. Likewise, our actions can and do reveal our faith or lack thereof. James 2, 18 and 19 says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? I used this passage last week where it says that even the demons shudder and tremble to talk about how the demons last week, legion, shuddered 
at the presence of Jesus. It was the demoniac filled with demons who said of Jesus, why have you come to torment us before the time, O Son of God? It is the demons that declared that Jesus was the Son of God. And they knew they were going to be judged. But they didn't submit their lives, their their beings to the authority of Jesus Christ. Here were individuals coming to submit themselves to Jesus Christ. Their faith could be seen. And it is their obvious faith that provides an impetus for an example. Notice Matthew 9, verse 2. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus uses their display of faith to reveal that he has the authority to forgive sins. Take courage, my sins, my son. Your sins are forgiven. How wonderful it is when faith is observable and plain for all to see. For when our faith is observable, it becomes an opportunity for people to grow in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he can do. God uses the display of faith in our obedient actions to him many times in ways that are unbeknownst to us or unimaginable to us. But Jesus is going to use this occasion to teach about the forgiveness of sins because without faith, it is impossible to please God. And without faith, you cannot have sins forgiven. It does not appear, at least to me, that on every occasion that a person is healed, that they actually are exercising saving faith in Jesus Christ. But in this instance, they are. And so Jesus uses it as an example to teach concerning himself the fact that he has the ability to forgive sins. So now let us look at the response of the scribes and the Pharisees to Jesus' authority to forgive sins. The response of the scribes was an inward response, verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. The response of the scribes was to reject the statement of Jesus. This fellow blasphemes. This fellow blasphemes. Blasphemy, in this instance, refers to taking the attributes and actions that belong only to God and attributing them to another. Blasphemy, because he was claiming the authority to do what only God can do, namely forgive sins. They say that specifically in Mark, or it's revealed that that's what their thoughts are in Mark. Mark 2.7 says this. 
Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's what they're thinking. How can Jesus say that he is forgiving this man's sins? Only God can do that. For what Jesus says is very important. He doesn't say your sins will be forgiven in the future. Nor does he say your sins have been forgiven. In other words, he's not announcing or proclaiming what the Father has done. He's not saying the Father has forgiven you. Nor is he saying in the day of judgment will the Father forgive you. Jesus is announcing that at that very moment, he is forgiving this man. He's declaring, your sins are forgiven by me. I'm forgiving you your sins. Now we know, of course, by other portions of scripture, that it is Jesus that we're going to stand before on the day of judgment, and all judgment has been given unto him. But at this time, this is a very startling revelation. That Jesus forgives sin. And so they jump to the conclusion that he's blaspheming because he's saying that he is going to do, he does only what God is able to do. Our text tells us in verse 4 that Jesus knowing their thoughts, Jesus knowing their thoughts. This is important for It stands in contrast to the words seeing their faith. Seeing their faith. Their faith was observable. And it was observable not only by Jesus, but it was observable by the crowds. And thus Jesus uses it as an example. But thoughts are not observable. You can't know what a person is thinking by looking at them. Now, sometimes we think we do, and sometimes we jump to conclusions, but we can't know what another person is thinking. Jesus doesn't merely assume what the scribes are thinking. He doesn't jump to a conclusion. Well, these scribes don't like me. Therefore, they are going to say within themselves that I am blaspheming. If you notice in verse 3, it says, Behold, now... This very important word, some of the scribes said to themselves. Not all of them. Not all of them. Some of the scribes. He's not talking about a general response that this group of people 
might have to what Jesus had just done. Jesus is responding to the specific individuals whose heart he knows, whose thoughts are open and before him, which makes him the proper judge, you see. The reason we are not to judge one another is because we don't know one another's hearts. We don't know one another's motives. We don't know what makes one another tick. Jesus does. And so we have this important statement that is going to unfold for us why he is the righteous and holy judge and why it is appropriate that he forgives sins because he knows the heart. Again, a characteristic or attribute which belongs to God alone. Psalm 94 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of man. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways. Jeremiah teaches us that we don't even know our own hearts. We don't even understand ourselves, what motivates us. We may even ask ourselves, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Did you ever ask yourself, why did you do that? Or did you ever second, your, second guess yourself about what you've just done? What was the motive? Was that, was that pure? Was it good? Was it right? Uh, we don't even know our own hearts. Only God knows our hearts. Only God knows our thoughts. Psalm 139 knows our thoughts afar off. Here, Jesus knows the thoughts of these scribes. Not only does he know their thoughts, but he knows that their thoughts were evil. Their thoughts were evil. Evil in what sense? I believe attributing evil to Jesus, namely that he was blaspheming. He knows that they think that what Jesus just said was evil. Therefore, Jesus invites them to think about the implications. Verse 5. For which is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Which is easier to say? If we're taking that in the most literal sense, I don't know that it's any more difficult to say one or the other. The one's not a uh, particularly difficult word to pronounce. It's not a tongue twister. It's just as easy to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. So it's not easier to say which comes out of your mouth easier. But which would have been more palatable? Which would have been more acceptable? Which would have Jesus come across in a better light? Why did Jesus decide to say, your sins are forgiven, as opposed to say, rise and walk? Why didn't he just take an easier way out? Nobody's going to have a problem with him. Everybody's going to be happy 
If Jesus says to this man, rise and walk, everybody's going to be excited, including the scribes. Everybody's going to pat him on the back, rejoice with this guy, and everything's going to be smooth. So why does Jesus decide to enter into a controversy? Why is Jesus stirring up these scribes? Why is he taking the time to get them upset? Answers given to us in verse 6. But in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's why. That's why. He said that because he wanted them to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. This whole passage is about authority. And you would understand that he has authority to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. He's using this occasion to demonstrate that he has the authority to forgive sins. But a second thing that he reveals here that is very, very important, that uh, I'm going to really drive home to you, is that Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah. Jesus refers to himself by the messianic title, Son of Man. Notice verse 6. But in order that you might know that the Son of Man. He doesn't say, in order that you might know that I have the authority. The Son of Man refers to Jesus. But now, Jesus says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Jesus is saying that he is the Son of Man. That is a messianic title. It is a phrase that is just filled with an unbelievable amount of informing theology. We used Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14 as our call to worship. Listen to them again. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Already in this story that is given to us, we are to see that this Son of Man, the Messiah, the Deliverer, is being given a kingdom. And all authority belongs unto him. Look with me back at Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. And when evening had come, they brought to many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill, 
in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. That's found in Isaiah chapter 53, that great chapter that speaks of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He took away our infirmity, he healed all of our diseases. Jesus is now saying, the Son of Man is on the scene. That one who is going to come, who's going to establish a kingdom. That one who is going to bring deliverance. But now he's going to reveal something about that deliverance that is just incredible. They understood, they being the Jewish people, understood that the Messiah would be able to deliver. They understood that the Messiah could deliver from all human powers. And they were looking for the Messiah to deliver them from the power of Rome. They understood that the the Messiah would heal them of their diseases. That was an expectation. They understood that the Messiah was going to do incredible things. They had a mixed understanding as to the actual person or character of the Messiah. Jesus reveals that the Messiah can do only what God can do by the stilling of the winds and the seas. But now he takes a dramatic step forward. One that they did not understand. And that is the Messiah can take away your sins. Not just be the agent. Not just be the sacrificial lamb. They understood that. They understood that he was going to be the deliverer from sins. But now he reveals that he is the one who actually pronounces forgiveness. The Messiah himself forgives you your sins. Thirty-one times in 29 verses in the book of Matthew alone, it refers to Jesus as the Son of Man and what he is able to do. I'm not going to read all 31 instances, but let me read a number of them to you. Just listen. And we're looking for the term Son of Man and what the Son of Man does. Again, not all of them, but, but many of them. Matthew twelve eight for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew twelve forty for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea of the monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew thirteen forty one and 42, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire 
In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Whom do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood is not revealed unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who is the Son of Man? He's the Son of God. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with the angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Matthew 17, 22, and while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to him, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Matthew 18, 11, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I have many more examples. Let me just cut to the chase and the climax. The climax comes when Jesus is on trial before the high priest, just before the crucifixion. They are looking for an occasion to put Jesus to death. They are questioning Jesus. Matthew 26, 63, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of the heaven. A quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, He has blasphemed! What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. He's blasphemed. You have heard the blasphemy. You have heard him say, He is the Son of God. For he said he is the Son of Man. They understood They understood. Next time you run into a Jehovah's Witness, Jehovah's Witnesses want to say that Jesus is not the Son of God, that he is a Son of God, meaning lesser than God. And they will tell you that uh, you mistranslate the Greek when you make Jesus the Son of God, not a Son of God. Well, you don't know Greek, so I'm not going to spend time going through the Greek with you. I'll make this one observation. They'll tell you that you are blaspheming when you say that Jesus is the Son of God. These New Testament writers, who know the Greek a whole lot better than anybody who's alive today, understood what Jesus was saying. And they knew that if he was not the Son of God, then he was blaspheming. They knew what he was saying. They understood the language. He is saying, he's God! 
And he is saying, he can forgive sins. They understood it. They knew it. And that's what we're saying today. He's the Son of God. And he can forgive sins. He is the great deliverer. More than just a physical deliverer, a spiritual deliverer. A deliverer from evil in its fullest sense. Not just the ability to cast out Satan, but to destroy Satan and remove evil and to take away all of our sin. He's able to forgive us. In this last incident, he reveals the power to forgive sins. The deliverer from sin, evil, and all of its consequences. So let's look at the response. First of all, the response of the paralytic man. Verse 9, chapter 9, verse 7, Matthew. Jesus had told him to rise and take up his bed and go home. Verse 7. He rose and went home. So he's obedient to Jesus. A good and proper response. His sins having been forgiven. The crowds, verses Matthew chapter 9, verse 8. But when the multitudes saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Luke 5, 26. Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with all, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. They talked about what they saw. And he said, this is really amazing. This is really neat. But they missed it. But they missed it. Because Matthew 9, verse 8, look at it very carefully. But when the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. No. To a man. And a special man at that. The Son of Man. The Messiah. The Deliverer. The one who can forgive sins. It's always dangerous to build a theological application or implication on silence in a text. But on this one occasion, I'm going to do it because I think the silence is deafening. No one asked him to forgive their sins. All of these people who came to be healed, who now hear for the first time that Jesus can remove their sins, there's not one recorded instance other than the man who's been forgiven that anybody else seeks the forgiveness of sins.
I find that incredibly striking. But I also find it incredibly ironic. For I believe that there are many, many, many people who seek and believe to some degree in Jesus' power to heal them. Many, many people, when they hear they have cancer, they have a bad heart, they need surgery, they break a bone, they, they do this, that, they pray and ask to be healed. That's commonplace. I've been ministering now for about 38 years. I've been going to the hospital for 38 years. I have a common practice that when I pray for somebody that's in a a room, if the uh, curtain is not drawn, if the other uh, person in the room is is, uh, aware of what's going on, I'll say to them, I'm going to pray for so-and-so. I would be happy to pray for you as well. In 38 years, I've never had a single person say to me, please don't do that. In 38 years, every single time, people have given me the permission to pray with them. Because they want to get better. They want to get better. On one occasion, many years ago, I was walking out of Hershey Medical Center. I was on the sidewalk, going to the uh, parking lot, and I was walking, I was carrying my Bible, and uh, I had a person that was approaching me. And uh, as they were approaching me, they they made eye contact. And as they got closer, they they said to me, please, uh, can I have a moment? And so I stopped, and they said to me, are you a pastor? I said, yes, I am. They said, would you pray for my mother? She needs to be healed. Stop me, a stranger wanted me to pray for her mother because knew that they'd be healed. People want prayer chains. People want to be healed. People come to Jesus for their physical, emotional, and financial needs. And yet so few come to Jesus to have their sins forgiven. to be made right with God. I wonder why that is. I don't have the answer. I wonder why it is. Is it because, A, it's not a huge priority? That the physical has so much more dominance over the the spiritual? Is it because they're so much more concerned about their physical well-being than their spiritual well-being? I don't know. Is it because it's easier to accept that Jesus or God can heal us physically, then he can heal us spiritually? Is it that our physical need is much more apparent than our spiritual need? We can know that 
we stand in need of healing. We, we hurt, we ache. Our doctors told us we are sick, we are dying. Is it, they know that they need to be healed physically, but they don't know that they need to be healed spiritually. I don't know what the answer is. But I am here today to proclaim to you the authority of Jesus Christ. The one that so many people look to. Who, when they're going to have a picnic, pray to, to have good weather. Because he has the authority. Over the winds and the seas. Who, when they are ill, pray to him. Because they want to get better. But have never prayed. And asked him to take away their sins. If you were here this morning. One who prays to Jesus. But have never asked him. To take away your sins. You are missing out on the greatest deliverance that he came to provide. It is in the taking away of our sins that ultimately we are going to be completely and thoroughly healed so that in the life to come there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, there is no more disease. He takes it all away. He takes it all away because he has the power power over sin and evil. He removes the, the wicked one. But for us to enjoy that day and to enter his presence, it means our sins must be forgiven. And not only does Jesus have the authority to forgive our sins, he's the only one that has authority to forgive our sins. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes out of the Father but by me. He's not a authority. He's not one among many. He is the authority. He is the one who can forgive sins. He is the one that we will stand before on the day of judgment and declare whether or not we are able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it will all be based on whether or not we have ever in faith sought for our sins to be forgiven by him. If you have never, ever prayed to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, may today be the day. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he indeed is the Son of God. We thank you that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer, the Promised One of the Old Testament. The one who's going to be given a kingdom, authority. The one who's going to reign over all things. And now today, the one and the only one who can remove sins. Who can forgive sins. I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who has never, ever prayed and ask God to take away their sins based on the authority of Jesus Christ and what he has done. 
May today be that day. O Lord, work and strive in their hearts, we pray. If there is anyone here this morning who wants to pray that prayer, I'm not going to ask you to pray it publicly. I'm not going to ask you to pray it out loud, but I will pray a prayer that you can follow in your heart and mind if this morning you want to experience the forgiveness of sins. I'm just going to ask you quickly, raise your hand, would you? So I can see that, so I can know that. Quickly, please raise your hand so that I can be aware and keep it up till you gain my attention. All right, if you want to trust in Jesus this morning, pray this prayer with me. Our Father, I know that I have sinned. I believe that only Jesus can take away my sin. I want my sin to be removed. I want to be brought under the authority of Jesus Christ. I believe that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man. Oh, Lord, welcome me into your presence and family. By the grace of Jesus Christ alone, for it's in his name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, uh, I'd like to talk with you. I'd like to be able to follow up and tell you more about the Lord Jesus Christ.